The time is now. Volume 4, Episode 86, this is Employment Law Now, and I am Mike Schmidt, your host and the Vice Chair of Labor and Employment here at Cozen O'Connor. I hope everybody uh, had a very nice long weekend, and I hope you all will have a chance to relax a little bit, maybe disconnect a little bit in this short week period between the holidays and a new year. Each year you do think that there'll be a little bit of a window at this time where maybe you get a break in employment law. Uh, and each year we seem to be wrong because so much tends to happen at the end of the year for some reason. This year, 2020, is no different. So I wanted to give you three quick hits on things that you may have missed last week leading up to the holidays, but I think are really important for you to be thinking about. First is the FFCRA, of course, the Federal Families First Coronavirus Response Act. And how much time have we spent talking about the FFCRA in 2020? Well, just last week on Monday, December 21st, Congress passed a large COVID-19 relief package that President Trump just signed into law over this past holiday weekend. While there is so much in that significant relief legislation to digest and analyze, and we will do that over the coming weeks, I want to focus on the implications for the FFCRA specifically. As you all know, because you are such loyal listeners to this podcast, the FFCRA was enacted last March 2020 to provide qualifying events for COVID-related paid time off up to 80 hours of emergency paid sick leave and up to 12 weeks of emergency FMLA leave. And all of those costs to the employer would be offset by a dollar-for-dollar tax credit that could be taken against payroll taxes by private employers. As you also know, the FFCRA became effective on April 1st, 2020, And as you know by now, it is set to expire at the end of this week, the end of 2020 on December 31st. The big question leading up to the end of this year, and one we have been talking about so much for the past couple of weeks, would Congress extend the FFCRA requirements into 2021? Well, we now have an answer to that big question. The answer? No, it did not. However, Congress did provide an incentive in its new relief package for employers to voluntarily continue FFCRA's leave scheme for the first quarter of 2021 through March 31st, 2021, if the employer so chooses, by allowing tax credits to continue to be taken by employers still for FFCRA leave provided to employees during that extended time period 
through March 31st, 2021. So again, to be clear, the FFCRA's requirements will expire on December 31st, 2020. Employers are not required to continue with the FFCRA leave requirements into 2021, but they may still do so for the first quarter of 2021 and therefore then may be able to take the dollar-for-dollar tax credits to pay for any FFCRA leave through March 31st, 2021. What are some takeaways from this? Well, again, the biggest one is that 2021 does not have a mandatory FFCRA scheme. It will be purely voluntary at least for the first three months, and to a limited extent. So as far as the requirements go, covered employers no longer will be required to provide federal FFCRA leave benefits after December 31st. They can if they want to. Takeaway number two, this new incentive does not provide for additional FFCRA benefits starting in the new year. In other words, if a previously eligible employee had exhausted all of his or her paid sick leave or emergency FMLA benefits in 2020, it does not provide for a new allotment of that leave in 2021. All it says is that if an eligible employee still has available paid sick leave or paid FMLA leave available to them because they did not use their allotment, In 2020, employers can, if they want, continue to allow employees to take the rest of their allotment for qualifying FFCRA reasons between January 1st and March 31st, 2021, in which case employers can then take tax credits for that leave that is being paid. Unless it is extended further or otherwise modified further, that incentive through continuing tax credits will then expire on March 31st. The third takeaway, it does not appear that all protections to employees will still be available, even if employers voluntarily give FFCRA leave in the first quarter of 2021. Thus, for example, since the FFCRA's mandatory requirements themselves will no longer continue to exist after December 31st, Things such as job restoration at the end of any leave may not be available for employees. So employees may get, if the employer so chooses to provide, paid FFCRA leave through March 31st, but they're not necessarily entitled to all of the benefits they were otherwise entitled to in 2020, such as being required to be restored to their jobs at the end of the leave. With all of that said, you want to keep in mind that states and local governments, in some cases, have COVID-related leave schemes that they enacted in 2020. Those may still continue to apply in 2021, so you want to check your jurisdictions. But otherwise, from an FFCRA standpoint, as of right now, employers are no longer required to provide FFCRA leave after December 31st, 2020, but they may do so in 2021, and if they do, they can receive tax credits 
through March 31st, 2021. It's possible that this was the best that Congress could do late in the year as a compromise in order to get other significant and much-needed relief measures signed at the end of the year before Congress leaves. Perhaps Congress can do something further on this early in the new year, particularly when President Biden takes office. We'll have to wait and see, and you certainly should keep it right here, uh, and we will continue to update you on all things FFCRA-related. Quick hit number two. Is there a possible end to the controversial President Trump executive order on diversity training? Well, last week as well, on Tuesday, December 22nd, a federal judge in California issued a nationwide injunction precluding the federal government from enforcing Executive Order 13950 against federal contractors and companies who received federal grants. For those keeping score at home, the case name is Santa Cruz Lesbian and Gay Community Center versus Donald Day Trump, J. Trump, pending in federal court in the Northern District of California. We don't usually pay a lot of attention to executive orders. Typically, that's because not a lot of controversy is stirred up by presidential executive orders, but this one did cause a bit of an uproar this year. Back in September, you will remember President Trump signed this executive order that essentially prohibited businesses that had contracts with the federal government or who received federal grants from conducting diversity training that were deemed to be by President Trump anti-American, such as those, for example, that referred to allegedly divisive comment, uh, concepts like white privilege or trainings that ascribe racist motives to a particular group or to the United States generally. LGBT nonprofit organizations sued in federal court in California this past November and sought an injunction which this federal judge just granted, at least as to federal contractors and federal grant recipients. The plaintiff's claim in this case was that the executive order prohibited training that was fundamental to breaking down barriers, particularly fundamental to the missions of these organizations, and that it was unconstitutional because it violated rights to free speech and because it was impermissibly vague and otherwise in violation of the due process clause. Well, in its decision, the court spent a lot of time uh, in the beginning of the decision on whether plaintiffs had standing in the first place before finding that the plaintiffs did have standing to make their arguments and bring their claims in federal court. It's interesting and I think important to point out uh, just from the beginning that uh, the executive order defined certain terms in its executive order, such as the term divisive concept. And it defined divisive concept to include nine different principles. And I think it's important uh, just to have an understanding as to what the definition was so that you might have a better understanding uh, of the rationale of this judge in granting the injunction that it gave. The executive order defined the term divisive concept as concepts that one suggests that one race or one sex is inherently superior to another race or sex. 
Two, that the United States is fundamentally racist or sexist. Three, that an individual, because of his or her race or sex, is inherently racist, sexist, or oppressive, whether consciously or unconsciously. Four, that an individual should be discriminated against or receive adverse treatment solely or partly because of his or her race or sex. Five, that members of one race or sex cannot or should not attempt to treat others without respect to race or sex. Six, that an individual's moral character is necessarily determined by his or her race or sex. Seven, that an individual, by virtue of his or her race or sex, bears responsibility for actions committed in the past by other members of the same race or sex. Eight, that any individual should feel discomfort, guilt, anguish, or any other form of psychological distress because of his or her race or sex. Or nine, meritocracy or traits such as a hard work ethic are racist or sexist or were created by a particular race to oppress another race. And so again, at the end of the day, the plaintiffs in this federal case in California claimed that those concepts, if enforced, would violate rights to free speech and are otherwise too impermissibly vague to enforce. And the federal judge agreed. There are a few quotes that I think are worth mentioning from this decision. Quote, Although the government has a legitimate interest in controlling the scope of diversity training in the federal workforce and can limit the expenditure of federal funds, that interest can be protected by narrowing the scope of this preliminary injunction. Thus, the government's interest is outweighed by the effect of the impermissible reach of the executive order on plaintiffs' freedom to deliver the diversity training and advocacy that they deem necessary to train their own employees and the service providers in the communities in which they work using funds unrelated to the federal contract. And that's an important point. Here, the judge relied quite a bit in uh, its decision on the fact that what the executive order was trying to accomplish bore no relation to any of the federal contracts or any of the federal grants that businesses were involved in. Quote, the government's intent to restrict the free speech rights of federal grantees even in circumstances where the speech in question has nothing to do with the purposes of the grant, end quote. That was fundamentally what the federal judge had a problem with. Specifically with regard to the two claims brought by the plaintiffs, first, free speech claims, the court ruled, quote, requiring federal grantees to certify that they will not use grant funds to promote concepts the government considers divisive, 
even where the grant program is wholly unrelated to such concepts, is a violation of the grantee's free speech rights, end quote. With regard to the second claim, that the executive order violated plaintiff's due process rights, quote, plaintiffs argue and the court agrees that sections four and five of the executive order are so vague that it is impossible for plaintiffs to determine what conduct is prohibited, end quote. The court goes on, quote, training on unconscious bias is critical to plaintiffs' missions and their work. Plaintiffs do not know whether they can continue with this critical training or if it runs afoul of sections 4 and 5. In conclusion, the court finds wholly unpersuasive the government's assertion that sections 4 and 5 of the executive order are clear or that any ambiguities may be easily resolved. The court finds that plaintiffs have demonstrated a likelihood of success on their due process claim challenging sections 4 and 5 of the executive order as void for vagueness. Real important decision coming at the end of the year, and we'll see what happens in this case as the new year goes on, but there are a few takeaways. First, for those organizations who are federal contractors or who are recipients of federal grant money, you have been concerned since September as to whether you can provide certain workplace training or whether your existing workplace trainings may run afoul of the executive order and thereby potentially impact your federal contracts or federal grants. Well, based on this decision, the federal government can no longer enforce that executive order anywhere in the country because a nationwide injunction was sought and obtained. A nationwide injunction, not just one in this California case impacting California employers. It was a nationwide injunction. But we do need to keep in mind that this was only a preliminary injunction. And for those of you who are not necessarily familiar with the procedural aspects of this, you have a lawsuit that is filed. There's a complaint that's filed with various claims, perhaps seeking monetary damages or non-monetary damages. And that case through its complaint proceeds in the normal course of any lawsuit. At the same time in the beginning when the complaint was filed, the plaintiffs also file a motion for a preliminary injunction. That essentially says, well, before we get to the final relief judge, before we get to the issue of whether a permanent injunction can be issued, this is such an important issue causing such irreparable harm that there should be a preliminary injunction issued pending a decision later on on the ultimate relief. And that's what this was. The court said that there was a strong likelihood that the plaintiffs would succeed on the ultimate merits, and therefore, because there was a showing of irreparable harm, and because their balance of their rights outweighed the any rights uh, that the defendants had here the federal government had in not getting an injunction the plaintiff's rights uh, outweighed the defendant's rights the court is going to issue a preliminary injunction pending an ultimate decision now let's look at the realities here so is it possible that the court can change course and despite issuing a preliminary injunction find down the road ultimately that the federal government was entitled to maintain this executive order and that plaintiff's claims would be dismissed? Sure, technically that could happen. 
but it's not likely. Issuing a preliminary injunction in this case, like in many other cases where preliminary injunctions are issued, is a strong signal, obviously, as to which direction the judge is going to be going in. But it is important and necessary to keep in mind that this decision was made only in the context of that preliminary injunction. With that said, for as long as the preliminary injunction is still in place, and certainly a defendant can appeal that or the case can proceed and uh, it could be undone and vacated later on in the case, but for as long as this preliminary injunction is in place, the executive order barring certain types of workplace trainings cannot be enforced against federal contractors and federal grant recipients. It's also likely that President Biden, when he steps into office, may quickly undo by his own executive order the impact and the, uh, and the requirements or the prohibitions of President Trump's executive order in any case. So we'll see and we'll continue to report on developments in this case and any others impacting the executive order. But for right now, there is in place a preliminary injunction restricting and prohibiting the enforcement of President Trump's September executive order. Finally, hit number three, quick hit number three for today, involves a real important United States Department of Labor rule, final rule that just came out as it relates to tip credits and tip pooling for those in the hospitality uh, industry uh, and any other industry where tipping may be something that you have to deal with with your employees. What did the United States Department of Labor just issue and what is the impact on its new final rule? Well, I am bringing in my esteemed partner from Cozen O'Connor in our Labor and Employment Department, Susan Eisenberg, who is resident in our Miami, Florida office, to give us a little bit of insight on this new rule. Susan, I know you're uh, so busy trying to get ready for a brand new year. I appreciate you taking a couple of minutes to join me today. Oh, my pleasure. Happy to do it. So we know the Department of Labor, the United States Department of Labor, just came out with an important uh, new rule. Uh, Before we get to the substance of it, when does this new rule take effect? Well, we don't have an exact date yet. It takes effect 60 days from when it appears in the Federal Registry. Um, That probably won't happen um, until after the first of the year, whether it happens in January or not remains to be seen. So we're looking at not before the end of February, which should give people some time to prepare. Perfect, exactly. So now we've got a little bit of time for employers to digest the new rule, understand it, and uh, implement whatever has to be implemented before it becomes effective. So let's, let's get to the heart of the new rule. What does the new Department of Labor rule provide? Sure. Well, we've got to keep in mind that this new Department of Labor rule, the regulation, um, really uh, follows the um, amendment, the statutory amendment to the Fair Labor Standards Act. So this came from an amendment of of the statute. Um, So what it does is it deals with tip credit and non-tip credit and the employers dealing with tipped employees. And what it provides for um, is that employers um, cannot keep any part of tips, whether they take a tip credit or not. 
It confirms that managers and supervisors cannot participate in the tip pool. It talks about how to deal with dual positions. One position is a tip position and one is non-tipped. Um, it talks about non-tipped related work. It provides for damages and penalties for non-compliance. Um, it talks about tip pooling with non-tipped employees, and, and it has a record-keeping uh, component that didn't exist before. So some of these are um, pretty self-evident, um, but let me mention a couple of things. Uh, first of all, if um, whether you take a tip credit or not, uh, managers and supervisors cannot participate in the tip pool. The real question was, and what we litigated over, was who's a manager and who's a supervisor. And the regulations clarify that, not as much as we'd like, but it talks about looking to the duties test of the executive exemption, not the salary basis test, but just the duties test. So if you are a supervisor or manager that is the head of a department, you supervise two or more people, you have a say in hiring, firing, discipline, uh, pay, and that type of thing, um, you're going to be a manager or supervisor for purposes of um, this new regulation. And you cannot share in the tips, you can't take any portion of the tips, and you can't participate in a tip pool. Regardless of how much money they make, to be clear regardless of how they're paid or how much money they make. Okay. It, it doesn't matter. But the interesting thing is the regulations do clarify that there are times when managers will get their own tip directly from a customer, and that's okay. And the manager can choose to tip out all or a portion of that tip to others, and that's okay. What the manager cannot do is throw those tips in a tip jar that will be subject to tip pooling because the Department of Labor was concerned about a slippery slope. If a manager contributes to the tip pool, are they then going to you know, be able to take money out of the tip pool? So that's what um, the regulations provide for in terms of managers and supervisors. The other thing that really changes is it allows employers who do not take a tip credit to still have mandatory tip pools, but if you don't take a tip credit, you can include in those mandatory tip pools traditionally non-tipped employees, like back-of-the-house people, um, the cooks, uh, the dishwashers. Um, and this is a big change um, because it allows the employer to kind of distribute the wealth of the compensation. And now those people who typically did not get to share in the tips will now get to share in the tips. And just to, just to reset the table here, for those who don't know, what is a tip credit? When you refer to employers taking or not taking a tip credit, what does sure. that refer to? Sure. Well, the federal minimum wage at this point is $7.25. If you have employees who were traditionally and customarily tipped, employers could pay a lesser direct wage, less than $7.25, and take, take the tips as to credit the difference up to, it was a fairly large amount under the federal rules, the minimum direct wage was only two thirteen. Um, as long as the employee received enough in tips to cover the difference. Now, if you took the tip credit traditionally, you had to comply with all the tip credit rules. The issue came up with um, or, or started because 
the Department of Labor wanted to control what happened to the tips, even if the employer didn't take a tip credit. And the court said they overstepped their bounds. That's when the statute was changed in 2018 uh, to provide for whether you take a tip credit or not. You can't touch the employee's tips unless it's provided for in the regulations. Great. So, so for the so now that's what a tip credit is, and we're now distinguishing situations under the new Department of Labor rule. We're distinguishing between employers who take a tip credit and those who don't take a tip credit for purposes of what the impact may be on the tip pooling issue. Correct, and and it's important to note that if employers take a tip credit. Nothing has really changed. The rules are pretty much the same. Um, the only thing they're going to be subject to that they weren't before is the record-keeping portion of it. Because now, whether you take a tip credit or not, if you have tipped employees, the record-keeping, you know, the part of the paycheck that reports the wages, um, has got to indicate the position that the employee holds and the amount of tips they receive either weekly or, or monthly. So if you're doing your own payroll internally, you need to make sure that change happens, or if you use an outside company, make sure that they change those records um, as soon as the, uh, the, the regulations go into effect. So employers who are taking a tip credit under the new rule uh, that the Department of Labor just issued, those employers can continue to have a mandatory traditional tip pool with employees who customarily and regularly receive tips. That hasn't changed. That has not changed, but they cannot tip, um, they cannot put in the tip pool those non-traditionally tipped positions. Great. And so the flip side then is, what does the new rule say about employers who do not take any tip credit? They are allowed to have still a mandatory tip pool, but they can include those positions in the tip pool that traditionally are not tipped positions, such as the dishwashers um, and uh, the cooks. Great. And so as long as we're staying on this tip credit uh, issue, one of the other problematic situations uh, has been when you have employees who are working, uh, for example, in a tipped role, um, but they're also performing non-tipped duties. And the question always was, well, how does the employer deal with that from taking a tip credit, uh, from a tip credit standpoint? What does the new rule provide there? Well, it tries to clarify things because you're right. I mean, this uh, that, that whole side work ended up in um, creating a lot of litigation. And if you, you may recall that the courts were and the Department of Labor referred to this 80-20 rule, like you couldn't do more than 20% of your duties, you know, as non-tip duties. The Department of Labor in the new regulations did away with the 80-20. They were very clear about that and said, look, as long as certain requirements are met, then you can take a tip credit for the non-tipped work. But those duties have to be related to the tipped occupation. And the Department of Labor sends employers to um, a, a, a list um, called the Occupational Information Network and says, look, if and it's a whole list of related duties. And if those duties appear there, there's a presumption that they're that they're related. Um, 
The other requirement is that the employee must perform related duties either contemporaneously or within a reasonable amount of time immediately before or after the tipped activities. So, for instance, if your wait staff is cleaning off a table or resetting a table or folding napkins, um, as long as they're doing it within a reasonable amount of time, when the table clears or right before the people sit down, then it's fine. What you can't do is say on an eight-hour shift, um, the wait staff is going to wait tables for six hours, and then they're going to take a position where they they clean or reset tables for two hours. Then then they're going to be in a dual position, and you can only take the tip credit or let them participate in the tip pool if you take a tip credit for the time that they actually are doing traditionally tipped work. So your point is, on the former situation, if they are performing related non-tip duties either contemporaneously or within a reasonable period of time before or after the traditional tip duties, then you can combine all that time for tip credit purposes. Correct, exactly, and you don't have to worry about it. So how uh, is this new Department of Labor rule really different than what existed before, and is this really going to be controversial? Um, well, the only the real change comes for those employers not taking a tip credit. Previously, they felt um, pretty secure in the fact that they could do whatever they wanted with the tips, and there was the Department of Labor had no authority over them. That's what's going to really change is that now those employers are going to have to come into compliance. The controversy, and remember this regulation went out for notice and comment, and the Department of Labor got you know tens of thousands of comments on this. And the only real controversial um, issue that was raised was the fact that employee side um, advocates said, look, now what's going to happen is the back of the house, now that they get to participate in, in the tip pool, employers are going to reduce their wages. Um, and that's not fair. And the Department of Labor took the position, look, as long as they don't reduce them below minimum wage and, and they're not taking the tip credit, then our findings are the back of the house is going to make more money even if their direct wage is reduced. And that was the only thing that um, I could see that was controversial. And, and you can't end a conversation about any employment law really these days without talking about the political aspect of it. Uh, we know that this is one of those uh, that even though, as you said, uh, the notice of rulemaking went out some time ago, uh, we are still in a transition period when it comes to uh, the new administration in Washington. What is the chance that we now see this Department of Labor rule either uh, get undone or get rolled back with a President Biden administration? Um, I, look, nobody's had a crystal ball. I, I don't see that happening for a couple of reasons. First of all, the new regulation follows the statutory change. So this wasn't just the Department of Labor making up a regulation where they saw a void. This actually is a statutory change that was passed by Congress. I, I don't see that changing. Um, the other thing is it's very employee-friendly. Um, so it's not like it's giving the employers all the advantage, which might be something that the Biden administration or the D Biden's DOL might want to change. Here, it's actually allowing the back-of-the-house employees um, 
to participate in the tip pool and it's regulating employers who don't take a tip credit. So I don't see this changing. Um, and even if the Biden DOL eventually wants to tweak it a little bit, it's going to be at least a couple of years um, by the time the, the appointees are confirmed and they, they, they dig into this. And they've got a lot of things um, like increasing minimum wage that I think they're going to find much more important to put on their to-do list before they, they reach the tip credit issue. So from a practical standpoint, what should employers do now uh, if they are impacted by this new Department of Labor tip rule? Well, absolutely all employers should look at the record keeping and make sure they're in compliance because um, there are damages that are available um, and it includes not only the difference between the, minute, the direct minimum wage and the tip credit, but it's all tips that have allegedly been taken. And there's also um, Department of Labor has the authority to implement civil um, money penalties of $1,100 a, uh, you know, a violation. So you should look at that record keeping fairly closely. And if you're an employer with tipped employees who do not take a tip credit, um, you really need to look at your um, tip pooling um, and, and make sure you're not taking any of the tips and making sure your supervisors and managers are not uh, participating in any of the tip pools, which they could have done before. Susan Eisenberg, resident in our Miami, Florida office and an esteemed partner of mine here at Cozen O'Connor. Thank you, as always, for joining the podcast. My pleasure. Have a great holiday season. You too, Suze. As always, Susan was incredibly informative. And that's it for today. Three quick hits for December 28th, 2020. Issues about the FFCRA possible extension, or lack thereof, the possible end to President Trump's controversial executive order, and the United States Department of Labor's long-awaited final rule on tip pooling. I hope this was helpful to all of you. I hope this is information that you can give some thought to and bring back to your organizations. As always, I greatly appreciate you listening to my podcast. And until the next time, I hope all of your labor is productive.